Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, Achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. Uh, I am in uh, my den in London. The sunshine streaming in because my office faces south. I'm picking out the uh, my bookshelf, which is full of drums. Um, James Holland is sat there in, and he's uh, totally on brand. Um, I'm just trying to paint a picture here. He's totally on brand. He's wearing his uh, We Have Ways merch hoodie. God I bless you, morning. James. You're a walking advert, even though none can see it. And James is, of course, uh, in his den with his SMLE in the background and yes. all sorts of books. And he's wrestling with maps and so on at the moment. And But we are joined by a, a special guest today. James, would you care to do some introductions for us? Thank yes, you. we've got Taylor Downing on today. And uh, we're thrilled about this because um, Taylor is has, has written a book about the work of RF Medmanham and the Photo Reconnaissance uh, units, squadrons that uh, played such a vital role. And, you know, you and I, are, we've talked about it in the past, that, that there is a danger because of the kind of sort of uh, beatification of uh, Alan Turing that we, uh, and because the the work of Bletchley Park was secret for so many years after the war. Well, well and the, the sort of impulse of, 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 the impulse of, we invented the computer. 
which is yeah, like and all basically that. what Bletchley Parker that. boils down to for a lot of people. We invented the computer, us, you know. But 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 there's obviously much more to intelligence than that. Is what well, you're, what you're that, that is the point. It's it's just that that. The way it's depicted, and the way most people think, is that it's Bletchley Park and Ultra and Decrypts and Boffins in their huts. Um, um, they are the intelligence effort, and of course, that's not the case at all. There's a whole load of other things, and it, and it's and it's everything pulled together that makes intelligence and allied intelligence so particularly effective, and particularly British um, intelligence. But you know, the work of RAF Mebenham is still a bit mysterious. People don't really know what went on there, and actually, there's an awful lot of parallels with with Bletchley Park. Um, and quite rightly, Taylor is arguing that it should be a little bit more to the forefront of our uh, knowledge when it comes to World War II intelligence. Second World so War well, intelligence, I should say. Welcome, Taylor. Thanks for joining us. How did you um, find yourself pursuing this line of argument? Because I've, I, we, we had Robert Harris on recently with his book about the V2. And people from Medneman, Medneman turns up in that book. Um, and and very much appears in the book. You can tell he's writing it as a hey, you don't know about this in the way that fifteen years ago he'd have wrote, written about Bletchley Park in a similar way. It is it is a it is a thing that's sort of a little bit still in the shadows, isn't it? It is very much, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was said at the time during the war. It was said that eighty percent of all intelligence came from aerial photography, from photo intelligence. 80%. Now, personally, I think that's an exaggeration. And I don't think there's much merit to be got from saying, well, 20% came from here, 30%, 40 you know, I mean, it doesn't really matter. The fact is, a great deal of intelligence, both tactical and strategic, we must talk about both sides of this, both tactical and strategic intelligence came from an analysis of aerial photography. And it was the RAF who at RAF Medmanham develop really a science, a new science for how to use photographs to get different levels of information, levels of intelligence for the Navy, for the Army, for the Air Force, for those watching the uh, industrial activity taking place in occupied Europe. They invented really a new science. And that's what's so remarkable about the work at Medmanham. And it was, as you've referred to, James, it was a bit like Bletchley Park, Medmanham was an old country house, Danesfield House it was called, on the beautiful bend in the river between Henley and Marlow that was requisitioned by the Air Force. Initially, a few hundred people operated there, but as the war developed, it spread, it grew, huts developed all across the garden. The cellars that had been presumably the wine cellars of this grand house became the place where model makers produced models from 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 aircraft, a, a range of talents from the universities, from industry, archaeologists, botanists, physicians, musicians, composers, artists, all went there. So again, like Bletchley Park, it became a, a centre of some pretty pretty eccentric, pretty wacky sort of people. And the atmosphere there must have been very, very unusual. I interviewed, when I wrote my book, pretty well everybody who was still alive um, who had been at RAF Medmanham, and they all talked about, you know, their first impression was not of entering a military base, but of entering almost a, a sort of quiet, studious, uh, almost an academic, almost a university-type environment. Uh, and, and that's what made RAF Medmanham very, very different. How did the RAF begin this project? Because obviously what, what you see, and the same, the same at Bletchley Park, is it starts with this tiny carder, it, at Bletchley Park in sort of 1939, doesn't it? And and the people who've been paying attention to this particular issue. And then and then by the end of the war, you know, blank check 
approach to, to getting this information and processing this information. By the end of the war, there's, you know, there's, the Bletchley Park site's huge. There's the satellite sites. It's a, it's a sort of sprawling concern. Is that the, the same approach the RAF had? Did they have a, a, a blank check to this? And were they drawing on their experience from the First World War? Because after all, photo reconnaissance, or at least reconnaissance with an aircraft, so you can say you can see what's on the other side of the hill, was one of the original uses of aircraft in warfare full stop. Absolutely. So, uh, so uh, what's the what's the progress? Yeah, uh, absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the parallels with Bletchley Park uh, do go back to the First World War. In the First World War, the Navy it was Room Forty and the Admiralty made enormous advances, huge developments in decoding uh, enemy radio signals. Right at the beginning of the war, the Navy destroyed the underground telephone cables from Germany. So everything had to be sent by radio link or diplomatic or military communications had to be sent. And so the, the, the Navy developed the process of code breaking that eventually becomes the government school of uh, code breaking and deciphering. And that eventually that becomes GCHQ. So there's a sort of line there. And just paralleling with that in the first First World War, the Royal Flying Corps initially, the Royal Air Force at the very end of the war, developed the process of photo reconnaissance. They, as you say, the, the original use of military aviation was for reconnaissance. Aircraft flew over the enemy lines, behind enemy lines, right at the beginning of the First World War. Uh, an observer would literally lean out the side of the plane take a photograph on a glass plate negative, take the camera back into the aircraft, put it in a black bag, take the glass plate out, put another one in, lean out the side and take another photograph. I mean, it was as primitive as that. But the quality was very good. And the army realised very early on, if you had this information about where the enemy's machine guns were, where their artillery was situated, then the whole process of... Uh, 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 of, inter of understanding the strengths and weaknesses in the enemy line could be greatly enhanced. So they produced, they, they put the photographs together, they created what were called mosaics. And very few actions from about 1916 onwards, very few offensive actions took place without the aerial intelligence. What then happened after the First World War is that all the lessons that have been learned about the speed of the aircraft needed, the type of cameras that were required, all of this was forgotten by the RAF. Photo reconnaissance became a sort of poor relation of the, uh, of, of the Air Force. Everything went into developing bombers, developing bombs, and there's a sideshow relatively even to that, the fighter aircraft and so on. Which, which is ironic, isn't it? Because the original point of the aircraft in the first place was so that you could do reconnaissance. Precisely. I mean, that was precisely. the entire point of them. I mean, and that's the, why uh, they were developed by the, by the um, RFC in the first place. Exactly. And the whole process of aerial dogfights and combats was merely to one group of aircraft to defend its reconnaissance aircraft right. from the enemy attacking its reconnaissance yeah. aircraft. So, so the whole of sort of <laughs> of, uh, of, of fighter... The raison d'etre of it was... was the raison d'etre was, 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 was reconnaissance. But the, the yeah. RAF somehow managed to forget this in the interwar periods. There were big developments took place, but it was in commercial companies. They were using aerial photography to, for instance, map areas. Geologists used it to um, map much of the Middle East to work out where were the, the likely places to drill for oil. Mineral uh, uh, miners in South America mapped huge areas of which there were no maps at all from the air. So great developments took place, but outside the world of the RAF. And when the Second World War start, the RAF get everything wrong. They use the wrong planes, they use the wrong cameras, <laughs> and they use the wrong lenses. Uh, they used Blenheim aircraft to begin with, slow aircraft. Amazing, though, isn't it, to think what could have been avoided? You know, if only they'd oh. gone over with a half-decent camera over the Ardennes on the 13th of, um, on the 
10th of May 1940. Wow, exactly. what a different story what, that could have what been. What they would have revealed. Entire army corps, panzer units, sort of waiting in the, in, yeah. in the woods. But they start off doing everything wrong in the Second World War. Um, the, I say, wrong aircraft, Blenheim aircraft, far too slow. Uh, they can't fly high enough. They're sitting targets for enemy fighters like the ME-109. They use the wrong cameras that, uh, that freeze up and, and uh, the lenses, uh, condensation forms on the lenses. So of the first... Uh, and, and Taylor, this is really... Sorry to interrupt. This, this is mm. really just because not enough thought has been put into it. It's all too sort of last it's, minute. It's not, not even that, James. It's, it's even worse than that. They've actually forgotten what they'd learned in the First World War. That's amazing. They'd completely forgotten the advances they'd made. They'd been a very sophisticated, as I was saying, a very sophisticated use of photos in the First World War. All of that had been forgotten um, by 1939. And so these poor pilots are sent out on effectively suicide missions. I mean, a half of all the missions, the photographic reconnaissance missions, up until about the summer of 1940, don't produce any usable photographs at all. About one in four of them are shot down because they're stuttering That's along amazing. at a low speed. The pilot, very brave pilots do as they're instructed to do. But it, it was a complete disaster. And it was an, an Australian, a maverick Australian, a man called Sidney Cotton, who comes in and says to the Air Force chiefs, look, you need the fastest aircraft flying at the greatest height with completely different cameras and lenses to get usable photos that will reveal anything for intelligence. And he has a big battle with the air ministry, with you know, officialdom, a classic sort of case. He starts taking photographs for the Navy. So in 1940, it's the Navy, it's the Admiralty who come forward and say, look, why don't we take over photo reconnaissance? Uh, ah. We know what we want. We know what we need. This man, Cotton, can supply it for us. So we'll take over photo reconnaissance for the purpose of the war. And of course, at that point, the RAF said, oh, hold on a moment, chaps. No, 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 we can't have that. You know, this is aircraft. This is our business. You know, we, we're the ones who, who know about flying. We'll take it on. And eventually, extraordinary. eventually, Cotton persuades them. This is, you know, right at the sort of middle of, well, the early part of 1940. He persuades them to give him two experimental Spitfires. Spitfires, of course, huge demand at the time. They were needed fighter squadrons. They were deployed to France. They knew that the likelihood was a Battle of Britain would ensue fairly soon. So they were very rare commodities, Spitfires, at this point of the war. Cotton persuades the Air Force to give him two. And what he does is he takes out all the guns to make them lighter. He fits one or two cameras. There are lots of different cameras used at different points through the war. But anyway, he fits a camera or two cameras into the aircraft, covers all the um, he, he streamlines the entire aircraft. So he manages to get about 30, 40 miles an hour extra speed out of the Spitfire. And he starts sending them initially over uh, German naval yards to photograph the ship's that they're in harbour, the import that the the Navy want to know about. And they start producing really excellent quality photographs. But because they're flying high, they're flying as high as you can go without actually creating a vapour trail. Produce a vapour trail, obviously it's like, you know, we all know that, you look up in the sky, you see a vapour trail, it's like a a giant arrow across the sky (laughs) pointing at the little object that's the aircraft. So so you have to fly below that height, but as high as you can possibly get without flying a vapour trail. So that's usually 27,000, 30,000 feet, something like that. But the cameras, the the, the Air Force then argue, ah, well, you're very clever at doing all that, but these photographs are no good because the resolution is too 
low. The, 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 we can't see enough detail to do sufficient military interpretation of these photographs. So he goes to a company, a friend of his, one of these commercial companies that had been developing um, aerial photography for mapping purposes. It's a company based in Wembley. Uh, and he starts them to interpret the photo. They have giant machines that sort of uh, magnify photographs and can, uh, people who can begin to interpret them. And then he shows that even from that height, you can get very useful intelligence from, from the photographs. And the initial, the place before, this is before Medmenham has been created. So in 1940, uh, early 1941, all the interpretation is done at this place in Wembley. Well, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, Wembley is a suburb of London, but it's right next to a railway junction. Uh, yes. And this, this it was called the, uh, the Aircraft Operating Company, um, was bombed, not intentionally. The, uh, the, the Luftwaffe didn't know the interpretation of what was going on. There. It was bombed unintentionally. And by the early part of 1941, it rains, the roof is leaking, the interpreters are sitting underneath umbrellas <laughs> doing, doing their work. For, and it was realised that this, this wasn't, good enough what we need we need a a dedicated establishment uh where we can focus this work so again this is where the parallel with Bletchley Park comes in they yeah. find this country house about 40 miles from London next to a good rail link into the center of the city into Paddington uh they requisition it and on April the 1st 1941 RAF Medmenham, it's named like all RAF stations after the local village. There's no airfield at RAF Medmenham. It's not an airbase. Yeah. It's, just a, it's yeah. just a research intelligence establishment. RAF Medmenham is opened on the 1st of April 1941 uh, as the Central Interpretation Unit. And so, because I've used one of those sort of spy glasses that they, they used for kind of interpreting, uh, which is sort of, it, it's it's sort of halfway between a magnifying glass and a microscope. And, and it's a sort of, it's a clever little bit of, bit of kit isn't it but it is amazing i mean you know you 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 place it on the photograph and then you kind of put your eye over it and it is just amazing what you can see and you think blimey you know these these photographs taken back in you know 1943 let's say for argument's sake the level of detail is just incredible but of course the key thing is about interpreting it isn't it you have to know what you're looking at yeah you have to know what you're looking at and so they develop a variety of ways of of looking at photographs. Let's start first just with the looking. So they, as the aircraft, as an aircraft um, flew over its target area, it might be an airfield, it might be a port, it might be a factory, uh, might be enemy tanks assembling. As the aircraft flies over its target area for photographs, the pilot presses a button and the, the uh, camera mechanism starts taking photographs. It's rolling film that, that, that moves through. It's not 35 millimeter it's huge eight by seven i mean different sizes at different times and different cameras in the world but roughly eight by seven uh negatives are taken huge negatives with what today we would say you know very high resolution imagery so the camera pulls the frame through uh and takes maybe once a second maybe once a half second depends on the height and the speed and everything else but what it means is that everything is photographed twice from a very slightly different angle. So when you line up the two photographs together and you look through, they called them a stereo. It was a little viewer, two, two little eyepieces on a stand, maybe four or five inches above the photograph. As you looked through, the image came into 3D. Very, very clever. Not, not just for effect, but because that meant you could then start measuring things. And one of the key elements of aerial photograph of using aerial photographs is to measure whether it's the 
the height of a tower, whether it's the size of a factory, whether it's the wingspan of an aircraft, whether it's the length of a ship. You can measure these things and then you can start to work out. Once you know the scale, you can then work out, right, so that is 28 feet long, right, so that ship is 312 feet, so it must be a class B, this, this, that, and the other, whatever it is. So the first, the first stage is to measure the information that you've got on the, on the camera. Then they developed all sorts of devices. I mean, the slide rule, which uh, probably unfamiliar to, 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 to most listeners, the slide rule was sort of... Just about my era. <laughs> very impressed with Elon, but the slide rule. Yeah, my father had one. I mean, my father taught me how to use a slide rule. Yeah, I remember. Same, same here. I've forgotten. How yes, I have too. I have as well. <laughs> and a lot of people, particularly the artistic folk at Medmenham, found it quite difficult to use a slide rule. So, so one of the WAFs, one of the female officers, wrote a little guide, to, um, sort of a mug's guide to using slide rules. So once you've got the slide rule, it's like a sort of pre-calculator sort of device. You could work out the scale, you could work out measurements. Um, uh, and then they also developed a whole sorts of other varieties. I mean, one particular officer who used to, who was in charge of analysing um, wireless towers, radio communications, radar uh, transmitters, tiny, tiny objects on the phone. He developed something called, he built this thing called an altismeter which was a device, I still don't understand how it worked, but I've seen photographs of it. It's a sort of spherical device. And you put in the time that the photograph, the day the photograph was taken, the exact latitude it was taken at. You work out the azimuth of the sun, which is the angle of the sun at that point. Of the, and you feed all this in, and somehow or other through spherical trigonometry, it tells you in a matter of seconds that if you've got a, if you've got a shadow, for instance, of two millimeters, then that means the object has to be 36 feet or, or whatever it might be. After the war, it's a little footnote to this story. This, this guy, Claude Wavell, his name was, who was a brilliant, brilliant man. He invented this device, this sort of pre-calculated device. It would have taken 30 minutes to work all this out using a slide rule, but on his little machine, he does Claude Wavell. Claude Wavell, that's his name. Brother yeah, of the yeah. more famous Archibald. Well, I'm not sure, to be honest. I don't, I don't think he was a relation. I think no relation, I think, but, but I'm not absolutely sure. But it's certainly the same name, James, yeah. Um, he, he asked for some compensation for, for this invention, um, and the Air Ministry offered him £25 at the end of the war for having, oh, for having God's invented sake. this sort of fantastic <laughs> device. Anyway, so they invent a whole series of devices for looking at the image and getting information out of it. Then... I suppose the most significant development that comes in um, aerial photography, the way the Allies used it, is they have what they call three phases of interpretation. So when an aircraft lands, the uh, fitters rush out, remove the camera, take the film out of the camera and take it straight to a place where it has to be developed and processed. Remember, this is film. This is not digital imagery. So this is film that has to go through a bath that has to be processed and developed and a negative produced and from that negative a print then has to be made and usually within about an hour of the plane touching down they've got a print that the first um, phase of interpreters can look at and what they're there they're there to get uh, immediate sort of tactical information out of the photograph is that ship still in harbour you know uh, has that squadron deployed at the airfield? Are the tanks still in position or has they, have they moved forward? Whatever immediate tactical requirement from, from the photographic mission is got. Then the, then the negatives and the photographs are taken 
from the airfield where the aircraft has landed to RAF Medmenham and a second phase goes through and usually this involves some sort of level of counting or numbering how many aircraft are still on that airfield, how many ships are in harbour, how many uh, trucks are lined up at this factory or whatever it might be. And then what what has always interested me most of all is then it goes to what's called the third phase of interpretation and these are absolute specialists in different fields. So, for instance, there's a, a shipping section that looks at the use of merchant shipping as it goes all around Europe. They build up a sort of map. You know, every Tuesday, a ship leaves Harbour A and goes to Harbour C loaded with coal, let's say. Suddenly, one week, they know there are two ships going from A to C laden with coal. So what's going on at C that means they need extra coal. So another coverage, another look. Let's have a closer look at what's going on here to see why they've doubled their need for coal. So one of the key things about photographic intelligence is that in order to know what's abnormal, what's new, what's different, you have to know know what is normal. (laughs) So, so Taylor, when 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 do they start sort of marrying up photographic reconnaissance information with other stuff because i mean i know i remember when you know there was before rommel launches the battle of alam halfa at the end of august 1942 he's got these six tankers that are coming across the mediterranean and and on that the fate of the kind of panzer army africa rests and ultra picks up you know decrypt is picked up um, which suggests that these are going to come across. Now, obviously, you've got to guard Ultra. So they then send off some photo reconnaissance planes to go and photograph them uh, and make it pretty obvious that they're buzzing over them so that the Germans don't think that, or the actors don't think that it's a decrypt that's the source of the of the, of the the intelligence. They recognise that it's an air, aircraft. So when are, the, when are they kind of, sort of starting putting those two things together? I think, to be honest, I think... Aerial photography always works in association with other forms of intelligence. Right, so right from the word goes, they're sharing this information. Well, uh, but and, vi- uh, and vice versa, just as you said when we started, Taylor, to say it's 20% this, 80% that, 40%, you know, whatever, is, is, is these, things are, the, these things are all working in such synergy that, to, that, to, that the whole, you know, I mean, it's sort of like dissecting a frog, really. The old thing they say about... Um, explaining a joke, you know, if you dissect the frog, you kill the frog. If you take one element out of out of the intelligence picture, there is no picture. Yeah, ab- ab- uh, absolutely right. I mean, let me let me tell you one story, for instance. The, 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 the view in the Air Ministry in 1941 is that Britain had a far more sophisticated form of radar, had developed a better form of radar than the Germans had. But then, come the latter part of 1941, Bomber Command's aircraft, as they crossed the border towards Germany find that fighters, night fighters are being sent at them with far greater accuracy than any form of British radar could have achieved. So they start thinking, well, maybe they've got a slightly different form of radar to we've got. At that moment, a photo interpreter, in fact, the man I mentioned earlier, Claude Wavell, who's looking for radio and radar, spots on a photograph near a place called Bruneval on the north coast Mm. of France, a tiny, tiny bowl... um, uh, device. It's less than a millimeter wide on his photograph, on the aerial photograph, and he thinks this is a new type of device. I haven't seen this before. He speaks to the scientists about it. He doesn't know what it is, but he speaks to the scientists, 
um, R.V. Jones, the, the, the famous uh, air ministry scientist, who's saying, well, actually, I'm looking for a new type of radar that we think the Germans got. We've picked up through ultra, through other forms of intelligence, the word Würzburg, but we don't know what it means. I'm picking up low centimetric uh, uh, radio pulses, but I don't know where they're coming from. So together, the scientist and the photo interpreter who's spotted this tiny, tiny little dot on the North Cape comes up, this is the new form, maybe this is the new form of radar. They then get the French resistance to go and make a few inquiries in the area. Uh, and they find that, yes, yes, this is a, a this is a well-protected um, radar site. There may be something new going on here. So they come up with this plan that a, a group of paratroopers will land inland, move up the valley to the coast, capture the site, dismantle it, take it over the cliff, down to the beach, and the Navy will come in and, and take them away. You know, I mean, that's a story in itself. What could possibly go wrong with a simple mission like that. Anyway, that's that's another story in itself. But the fact is that, that photo interpretation finds this spot, uh, f- finds this this site, but doesn't know what to make of it. It's just a new site. Wavell says, what is this? I don't know what it is. That coincides with the scientist saying, I'm looking for a spot that could be a sort of paraboloid type, uh, cone, bowl type radar, not like a big tower that we have. It could be something different to that. So the marrying of those two bits of intelligence produces the raid that successfully dismantles the radar, takes it back to Britain, and uh, the scientists then analyse it and work out how it, how it operates and then find a way to So they don't it. work that out until the Bruneville raid? Because I thought they knew about Würzburg and Freyers and things much earlier than that. They knew so about they the Freyer. Yes, they knew about the Freyer, but the Würzburg was a later development and a more sophisticated. It used a, a shorter wavelength. Just one right. final little sort of postscript to, to the Bruneville raid was that the Germans then realize oh my god you know if they've raided Brunoval they might raid any of our specialist centers so we'll put barbed wire around all of them as a form of protection and that barbed gives them away absolute gift photo interpreters because the grass grows underneath it in a different way to the grass around so it's a bit like with, with a felt tip pen putting a ring around it as so far as black and white photographs are concerned a do- like a donut of grass exactly. around the site exactly yes. uh, uh, and actually, in the Amazing. in the build up to D Day, the um, uh, mostly rocket firing typhoons managed to destroy seventy four out of ninety two radar stations along the Atlantic Wall. Yeah, yeah, and that all began with these developments back in nineteen forty two and the Brunoval raid and so on. But I just love this idea that the Germans say, "Aha, we, you know, we'll fool them. You know, we'll make it far more difficult to capture. We'll put sentries and we'll have defences and we'll put barbed wire around all of them." And in fact, it's just like ringing them. Um, as you say, like putting a giant donut or a giant yellow, yellow sort Amazing. of felt tip pen around them. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Taylor Downing about photo reconnaissance. Welcome back to We Have Ways. Uh, we're talking to Taylor Downing about photo reconnaissance. I can't get enough of this subject. How on earth did the Germans think the Würzburg site had been spotted in the first place? You know, um, I mean, I, what, what's really, I mean, this is throwing up all sorts of things uh, at thoughts. Is that, as you say, when you're, when you're doing intelligence, um, you need to know what's normal um, uh, uh, before you can see what's ab- abnormal. And, and, but I'm also struck, you also look for the things you're interested in. So... Um, rather than necessarily the enemy interested in. So the, the, the looking at the shipping and figuring out 
that's that's the the allied approach to war is based around shipping is op- is the operational thing is really important so what you do is you look at what the other side's doing in those terms so that's a that that's really really interesting that's you know because after all maps have on them what you want on the map they don't show you what what's actually there they show you the things you're looking for when you look at a landscape you look at the things you're interested in rather than the things you're not and this is very this is very very interesting in that respect so and also the other thing that really that this really throws up is that the germans don't do this do they you don't have we've detected a new radar i better talk to the lads up at up at you know up at up at radar science development to to see if they've got any bright ideas because everyone in germany is looking to stitch each other up or take each other's position or knife one another it's far more divided it's far more divisive exactly it's divided rule principle from the top isn't it yeah from from the top and so there are i mean the germans start the war with very very good photographs so they've got excellent aircraft they've got excellent cameras and they've got very fine Leica lenses and Zeiss lenses they've got you know some they've got everything going for them but they don't really develop it very much I mean in the early stages of the war the lightning war blitzkrieg so you know they don't really need um, aerial photography you know the armies are advancing too quickly they can't give them any information they're already there by the time the things would have been photographs would have been processed and developed and printed and everything else uh, so they fall right behind. And then by the time it would become useful to them, 1942, 1943, on the Eastern Front and uh, uh, looking over Britain, for instance, um, then they, they, they just completely lost out. They, 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 they can't then establish. Also, they don't... In, for the RAF, all photo interpreters were officers. And that's a sort of sign of the sort of status that was given to this type of intelligence. It was, it was not officers in the, in, the, in the German military who did this. The army had their own, the Luftwaffe had their own, uh, uh, and, and so on. And um, so it just falls, falls way behind. From a, from a head start, the Germans fall right, right behind in this. But, but it, it certainly is, it is a story of, of the combination of different forms of intelligence. And the great thing about photographs, of course, that like you're saying about maps, Al, is that photographs are a sort of active intelligence. You can go out and whatever's there, you can record. Signals intelligence relies upon somebody giving some information that might be of use to you. Human intelligence, human, you know, an agent has got to, got to either pick up on something or by chance hear about or, or find some information. Whereas Photo intelligence is active. You're not relying upon other things happening that you can then interpret from. You can say, well, I think that factory is doing something extraordinary. I want to go and see what, what that factory is about. By repeated cover, this was the other trick of aerial photography, everything was covered over and over again. It was all logged. It was all plotted. Uh, everything was stored in a giant library. So you could go back and say, well, look, I want to look at that factory a month ago. What did it look Ah, there's a complete new wing of this factory has been built in the last month. What are they doing there? Then maybe you could ask, you know, to contact the local resistance to say, and they'd say, oh, there's thousands of tons of steel and concrete are being deployed at this place. So then you could piece, slowly piece together um, bits of information. It's why a lot of archaeologists were good. The entire Cambridge Archaeology Department was recruited for Medmenham through the course of the war because they're used to having a few fragments of information that you can then piece together the whole picture. Well, actually, Taylor, I can give you one very good example of that, and that's the uh, the Valentin bunker, um, which is a was there to assemble. It was an assembly plant for Type Twenty One U boats, which were you know street years ahead of every other 
submarine that took part in the war. Um, and uh, the you know photo reconnaissance spotted this this huge monster. It's like four hundred meters long by hundred meters wide, being constructed. And what they noticed was that part of the roof was incredibly thick, and they worked out through photo reconnaissance that large part of the roof was fifteen meters thick so completely impervious to any bomb that could possibly be dropped on it but not all of it and there was one bit that was only five meters thick so they they waited until it was 98 percent completed and then 617 squadron went over with grand slams and and, uh, and and hit punctured the roof in i think two or three places because the the grand slams were um high explosive bombs obviously they were supposedly the earthquake bombs went through three meters and then exploded and that did the trick to get through the last two and so brilliant. not a single u-boat was ever assembled there because it was destroyed brilliant. before it even started brilliant. so so the other thing just on, on u-boats was that the aerial fo- the, the photo interpreters could identify where new keels were being laid so in february 1941 the guy in charge of, of that section identifies that huge numbers of keels of u-boats are being laid down and they the germans always did it in exactly the same so the process of building a U-boat took, took about 11 months, including the trials and so on. So once you start counting the number of keels that are being laid down, you can predict what the U-boat force is going to be like in about a year's time. And it was in February 41 when the photo interpreters spot this huge increase in the number of keels. That's reported to the head of naval intelligence. That's reported to Admiral Pound, who tells Churchill in the War Cabinet about this. And that sets all the bells buzzing, makes Churchill declare, right, we're now fighting the Battle of the Atlantic. You know, this is as important as the Battle of Britain. So again, photo reconnaissance is, in this case, predicting what the enemy force is going to be like, the U-boat force, in, 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 in a year's time. So again, it's, it's, it's sophisticated use of, of photographs. And that's what appeals to me about Medmenham. You know, there's the first phase with this instant analysis, the second phase, slightly more detail, slightly more. And then this third phase where real specialists are saying, what's going on here? Or we think this is what's, what's happening here. Uh, we, we can predict what's going to happen in a year's time or whatever. Or this factory is now taking over the... Or this is where they're producing synthetic fuel or whatever it may be from from chemical plants. We can tell. They could tell from the trucks that were used on the railways what types of material were being taken from one place to another. So all that comes out of this specialist third phase stuff. And that that's that for me is one of the real fascinations of photo. So you start you start off with two borrowed Spitfires in 1940 that Cotton gets his hand on and he, and, and he adapts. How rapidly does that, that force expand? And by, so by the end of the war, I mean, they must be taking millions of photographs, by, uh, have taken millions of photographs by the end of the war. How many aircraft are they running and how many, uh, how many flights are they running a day? And is it, you know, the scope and uh, are, they, are they running routine flights or is it always like we, we need to go and look at Keel, the Keel Canal now because we've got, you know, what, what's, the, what's the sort of framework and what's the size of the effort by the end of the war? It's a huge effort. I mean, there are many, many squadrons at different bases uh, around the country who are, who are now uh, dedicated to photo reconnaissance. And, you know, I think it takes a rare form of bravery. These guys, remember, they've got no weapons on their aircraft. They're flying sometimes for hours at a time over occupied Europe, high, and really very cold. I mean, the, the, the descriptions that the pilots have given of, of, you know, the clothes they have to put on. They're flying in radio silence. 
because to communicate would potentially give away their position. Most pilots are used to sort of flying in formation, but these guys fly alone, as I say, for hours. They rely upon absolute precision navigation. Let me tell you one quick story. Um, again, from May, I think it's the 21st of May, 1941. Another good story about how intelligence links up. The Swedes have reported that a big German ship has left through the cataract um, into the, the, the Norwegian waters. And there's a small photo reconnaissance unit at Wick in the northeast of Scotland, just, just down from John O'Groats. Pilot officer uh, Michael Suckling heads off, goes to Bergen, flies up the coast, and as he passes just over Grimstad Ford, um, just along from Bergen, he spots this very large ship in the harbour, goes down a little bit, takes a series of photographs. He then has to get back across a completely featureless sea to Wick with his precious cargo, his photographs. Um, he manages it. He's got about 10 gallons of fuel left in his tank. A Spitfire uses about a gallon of fuel a minute. And he's got 10 gallons of fuel left in his tank when he gets back to base. They rush out. They take, he said, I've, there's a big ship out there. I don't know what it is. It's big. They photograph, they, they, they print the photograph. The interpreters count the number of guns and say, my goodness, this is, this is the Bismarck. You spotted the Bismarck. And then when they look, all the torpedo nets have been removed at the end of the field. So it's just about to sail out into the Atlantic. Now, once you know where the Bismarck is starting from, you can track, you can estimate what its course is going to be. So that begins, you know, one of the most famous naval races mm. in, 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 in British naval history, sink, sink the Bismarck and all of that. And that photograph is described as the photograph that sunk a battleship because knowing where it's starting from and when it's starting, you can sort of predict when it's going to go down past Iceland, Greenland, through the Denmark Strait, you know, out into the Atlantic and you can have a, a force waiting for you. So, again, this is a combination of extraordinary flying skills, getting from this tiny clifftop airstrip across, you know, a thousand miles of featureless sea and then back again. And what you needed with, with the reconnaissance pilots. You don't need bravado. You don't need aggression. You don't need, ah, show them. What you need is somebody who can sneak in there, get his photograph and get back again. And if anybody comes after you, if, the, if they send up aircraft, all you've got is your speed and your flying skills and your daring to get away. That's and they're it. all volunteers, aren't they? They are. They're volunteers. You volunteer and for it, PR, don't you? You do. Absolutely right. And a lot of, you know, natural fighter pilots didn't make, didn't make it. They, weren't, they didn't have the quality that was needed. And interestingly, a lot of people who were very successful fighter pilots were actually sort of almost pacifists. They liked playing a role in the war where they didn't have to kill anybody. Mm. They could play an important role. They could do their job, but it wasn't a combat role. And so it actually yeah. proved, uh, you know, a lot of people volunteered for it and were extremely good at it. The sad thing was that a lot of them went missing and you never really knew what had happened to them. I mean, Suckling, who, who, who does this mission I've just talked about over, over Grimstadtfjord and spotting the Bismarck, two months later, he's on a mission over La Rochelle. He's flying out of Cornwall this time. He's flying over La Rochelle and um, he, he didn't come back. Nobody knows what happened to him. Did he have a technical fault? His plane crashed in the sea. Did the Germans send up uh, a, you know, a squadron of fighters who caught him? Did they ambush him? Nobody knows. They never got a body. You know, the family never got a body. Nobody knew what happened to him. He just disappears. And that was the sad, tragic fate uh, of many uh, federal reconnaissance pilots. They just disappeared and nobody, see, nobody that, knew what happened to them. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. You know, if they're intercepted, there's no way of knowing. 
Um, I, I mean, do, 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 are the are the Germans sending um, fighters up to deal with to deal with the PR um, much? Do we know that? Um, do we know what what they had what they had in the way of sort of countermeasures to deal with? Uh, PR yes, flights. they were sending up pilots. Uh, they were sending up fighter aircraft, and as I say, sometimes the, the the photo reconnaissance planes never came back. In the main, because they've been really streamlined, if the pilot, you know, full throttle at that height, he would get away. They'd never get up to him at that height, and they'd never catch him at, at speed. And there's relatively little idea that, that, that this was all coordinated. So they say, well, you know, he's heading west. So, you know, you squad and you scramble and get up to 30,000. That didn't seem to happen very much. The real threat came towards the end of the war when they developed the ME-163, the Comet, uh, and then the ME-262, the, the jet fighter. And they can, of course, dramatically outperform the Spitfire, and by, by the latter part of the war, they, the um, RAF were also using the Mosquito, many marks of which were, were, were faster than the, um, than the Spitfire. For, for, and the Mosquito is very well equipped for photo reconnaissance. You can have the second, you know, the observer or the navigator can actually be operating the cameras and the pilot's just concentrating on getting there and getting back and so on. And the, the ME-262 did prove a real threat and there were lots of casualties. But after a while, and you've got to be pretty brave, you, they worked out that the that both the Spitfire and the ME-262 were so um, manoeuvrable by comparison to the to the Messerschmitt, to the jet, that if, they, if you could get the jet close enough to you and then take really dramatic evasive action, go into incredible dives or spins, the G-forces on these guys sometimes made them violently sick but then the jet would shoot past you and in you know, a matter of seconds be miles away um, and you could get into a cloud or you could get, you know, and, and you could get away. So although they proved a big threat, they weren't quite as destructive, quite as um, dangerous uh, as you might imagine a faster plane would have been. And they're developing a pressure. Is there a pressurized cockpit by the end of the war and all that sort of stuff? So it gets a little more comfortable for the pilot is that, uh, am i right in thinking that there are but not i don't think in the in these uh, smaller aircraft no the pressurized things was was in the bigger uh, bombers it wasn't a mustang so wasn't it but the mustang had pressurized cockpit did it okay uh well, it certainly had corrected. heaters in it. it certainly had heater in it and stuff yeah like that. but yeah. T- but taylor you know i mean I, I you know we, we've obviously seen lots of um photo reconnaissance photographs um but but is there a, is there a collection of them where you know can one go and look at all of them or, or a mass of them yeah, there, there are two principal collections today. <clears throat> the Americans took a lot. They, when America came into the war, they, they sent intelligence officers to Medmenham and they looked around and they said, well, actually, this is such a sophisticated operation. It's no point trying to set up our own. What, what's the point of rivaling this? We'd have to have two huge libraries of photographs. We'd have to have learn a new set of skills that you guys have already learned. So the Americans sort of joined the effort at Medmenham and it became from the Central Interpretation Unit, it became the Allied Central Interpretation Unit. And along with men from the RAF, the Navy and the Army, along with the many women who worked at Medmenham, mustn't forget the role of the WAFs, Women's Auxiliary Air Force, uh, there were a huge number of women who were found right from the very beginning. They, they, it was recognised that, that, that women had a tremendous um, ability to work on these detailed uh, examination of photographs. So along with the, 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 the men and the women from the British military, 
uh, American officers join the effort at Medmenham as well. RAF Medmenham ends up as a as a allied central interpretation unit with Americans and British, and they're also. Norwegians and Dutch and other people. They're a big international sort of unit. At the end of the war, the Americans take all their material back to the National Archives in Washington and they capture a huge amount of Luftwaffe photograph, for photography, mostly from the early part of the war. And that all goes to Washington and it is available. Working in the National Archives in Washington is, is not easy anymore. The, all the federal cutbacks under, under President Bush uh, in the early 2000s and then more recently under Trump has meant that working in the federal archives is a very slow business. But you can. I've got lots of images up from the vaults. It takes several days to get them out. Anyway, and so on and so on. Um, but there's a huge collection um, just outside Washington in the National Archives. And the main collection here is now in Edinburgh. It was recognised in the 1950s as a um, public record and was given to the University of Kiel. But then some years ago, Kiel decided it was such a huge, vast resource and it needed specialist knowledge. And they looked around and it's all now gone to, anyway, it's called the, um, uh, the National Aerial Reconnaissance Archive, run by a brilliant team of absolutely dedicated specialists up in Edinburgh. Uh, and uh, for instance, James, if you're looking for photographs for, 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 for D-Day, for, for, for your new book on the Sherwood Foresters and so on, on the course of the 6th of June, 1944, RAF reconnaissance aircraft went right along, flew right along the beaches from east to west, about every two hours in the course of the day, taking photographs. Uh, I think probably largely because they thought if all this goes wrong, if we're thrown back into the sea, we'll want to analyse exactly what happened and, and what went wrong. Um, so they built up this enormous, really extensive coverage of literally hour by hour through the course of the 6th of June. Of course, come the 7th of June, all the issues are tactical. You know, how can we move forward? How can we break out of the beachhead? Uh, the armies, as we know, are then stuck in this horrible war amongst the hedgerows, amongst the bocage of Normandy. And all the photographs that were taken on the 6th of June are no longer of any interest to anybody. There are new sets of priorities. So they're all just filed away. They're just sort of thrown back into the, the library in Medmenham, which eventually end up, they're, they're, they're all in Kiel now. And they're a really very dramatic resource, a very interesting resource for, for historians to use. Yeah, and no, I'm going to check that out for yeah, sure. Yeah, do. Do. <laughs> There's one other story I'd, I'd just like to tell, if, if I can, which is the story of the discovery of the, 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 the V, the, well, particularly the V1 the flying bomb. Again, it's a story of combined sets of intelligence. You know, reports come in that there's work going on on this Baltic site called Pienemunda. The RAF happened to take some photographs of it. R right back, I think the first one was in May 1942, an aircraft actually photographing Berlin couldn't take his photographs because of cloud cover. So he comes back along the Baltic coast, sees some construction work going on, just takes a few photographs. The photo interpreters look at it and say, well, what on earth is that? We've no idea what's going on there. So they're all filed away. Over time, certainly during the course of 1943, more and more intelligence comes out that this is some sort of research unit, that some sort of rocket or flying bomb or missile is being developed there. So they look again at these photographs. More reconnaissance is taken. And then it's this extraordinary woman, Constance Babington-Smith. She was, she was a, 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 a clearly a very, not only a very capable woman, um, she was very photogenic, so whenever they, the, the, the unit needed a um, um, poster boy or poster girl, you know, out she came with a slide rule, with a little stereo 
examiner uh, and you see photographs of hers. But she was absolutely brilliant at her job. And she eventually spots this tiny unit. Again, it's less than a millimetre on the photograph. Cross of, of what we know later is called the V1, the flying bomb. She measures it. It's 23 feet wide, 28 feet long. She manages to get that degree of accuracy. The scientists look at that and say, well, we reckon that probably would have a range of about 130 miles. Assuming London's the target, let's look at a radius across northern France, 130 miles. And what do they find? But new constructions going on at exactly that point with ramps pointing towards London. Extraordinary. So by the end of 1943, they spotted actually 96 of these sites, 130 miles, all from the identification of, a, of an object less than a millimetre wide on a photograph. Um, and then, you know, the story unfolds. They decide to bomb. They obviously bomb the, the 96. The Germans come up with a new way of launching uh, of V-bombs. But all this is happening in the early months of 1944 with the launch of the V-bomb campaign being pushed back and back. They initially wanted to start in late 1943. Then they said, we'll launch it on the Hitler's, the Fuhrer's birthday on the April the 20th. All of these dates pass because the RAF spot the, through the photo reconnaissance, uh, through the photo interpreters, they spot the sites, they destroy them. The campaign is put back. And as we know, it actually starts, I think it was June the 13th, about a week after D-Day. Had that campaign started and V-bombs raining down on Portsmouth, on the assembled troops in southern England. Who knows what would have happened to D-Day? At the very least, it would probably have to have been postponed. So from this, you know, I would argue that from this one photo interpreter spotting and identifying an object less than a millimetre wide on an aerial photograph, a campaign is begun, prevents the V-bomb from coming down, the V-1s being launched uh, for months and months and months and helps to save the D-Day uh, invasion. Obviously, you know, that's a very simple, <laughs> a very simplification of lots of very complicated elements. Um, and it's not... An but the key message here is PR, PR was very important. Very PR important. Works. That's, that's the message. Works. Please get yeah, that yeah. message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my book, Spies in the Sky, uh, <laughs> argues that very, very strongly. Well, thank you so much, Taylor. I mean, I, I, my, eyes have, I mean my eyes have been opened wide to this... Uh, a branch of the war effort and i think i think it is imp it is important to because because we there has been a relentless diet of how amazing bletchley park was and i'm not going to say it wasn't amazing but you know it it, it it's a point intelligence is a pointillist picture and you know you you it, it's made up of the tiny dots and these this is how they find the dots that then, that then you can zoom out and see what's really going on. So how how absolutely fascinating! Thank you yeah, so much. No, amazing for, for, for talking to us. Um, thank you. I mean, I, I I need to. I want to rush away and read about this now. So yeah, me too. And on. I also need yeah. to look up pictures of Constant Barrington Smith. Yes, I well, I there we are. Spies in the sky by <laughs> Taylor Downing. Everybody, um, thank you very much for talking to us. We'll see you all soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.